0: Good morning. Good
1: morning. Good
0: morning. Welcome to Bible study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I am Pastor Longman. Today's April 2nd, 2023. Um, just so everybody knows, we are recording for the podcast that will get published later on. Um, so, you know, don't say anything that you don't want out there. Um, <laughs> we'll begin, as usual, with any questions that anybody might have about anything.
2: What did, what did God write?
3: What language did he use when he wrote the 10
0: commandments? the 10 words. Uh, ten right? words. It's all in Hebrew. Hebrew? Hebrew. Hebrew. He wrote yeah. it in Hebrew. Yeah, okay. pretty sure that's the language God speaks. <laughs>
4: <laughs> did, did the no, Hebrews speak Hebrew <laughs> in, in, when they were in captivity?
0: Well, yeah I mean so the two prominent languages among the Israelites were Hebrew and Aramaic and and those are the two Hebrew. languages it, yeah well certainly I mean that was their that was their language so they preserved that and kept it now probably you know living a, as a diaspora if you want to call it that they probably spoke Egyptian as well or whatever Egyptian, yeah. yeah but but they preserved and kept Hebrew um, and that had that has kind of always been their language so Hebrew, and then Aramaic is the other one. There's, there's bits and pieces of Aramaic preserved in the Old Testament for us. Um, so some chunks of Daniel, and I don't remember where else, but there's a couple of places where Aramaic pops up.
4: Did Jesus say that from the cross? Um, he
0: spoke some Aramaic from the cross, yeah. From the cross. Yeah. And, and the, there's another spot. I think the, um, when he raises Jairus' his daughter, he says, mm-hmm. I think that's Aramaic, too. Is that right? I don't remember. Anyway, yeah. Okay. So, and really, the difference between the two is that Aramaic was more the conversational language and the Hebrew was the formal language, um, but both of them kind of existed at the time. Th- that's an interesting thing, though, you talk about language, because um, it, it it brought to mind the old story that is, as you're reading Exodus, one of the interesting things that happens, you get through you know the plagues and everything in Exodus, you get up to chapter 15, where they finally come across The Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds or wherever it was. We don't know for sure. Um, But we come across and then there's this wonderful song that Moses gives, um, you know, about the chariot and the horses and all that kind of business. But what's interesting about it is if you look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew like all of a sudden shifts to this really ancient form. It would be a little like you're reading along in the ESV or the NIV Bible and all of a sudden there's a chunk of it in there that's from King James. Hmm. It's that kind of thing and and you're, you look at it and you're like why the stylistic change in the Hebrew what's going on here and the explanation that was given to me by one of my seminary professors and I think he's right is because that's worship right and you don't mess with worship those are those are kind of sacred words that you speak and that's a form that people recognize and they want to hear it that way. It's the same reason that when we say the Lord's Prayer, we use the these and the thys and all that kind of business. I thought that was interesting too. But but yeah, Old Testament is Hebrew, Aramaic. Of course, the New Testament is all Greek, but there's some Aramaic floating around in there too. But the New Testament
5: is Greek off of a Hebrew translation.
0: Um, No, not entirely. A lot of it was written in Greek um, because that was sort of the lingua franca of the day. Um, Now, what's interesting is that if you look at the Greek... Mark's gospel is a pretty good example of this. Um, there's, the Hebrew influence on the Greek is really obvious because there are Hebrew idioms and phrases that get carried over into the Greek. And so, it, you know, the, the, there's a really neat variation of the of the style of the Greek and that kind of stuff. And so you feel the Hebrew influence on the Greek in a lot of places. Um, other places, like you read... Um, Hebrews is a pretty good example. Hebrews is like, you know, kind of high academic kind of Greek. It's, and John's Greek is very, very different from Mark's Greek. Yeah. And you, you get that in the translations, too. You hear some of that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just it, kind of the individuality of the, of the vessels that God used to write all this comes down, which is neat. Cool. That was a good question. What? Yeah. My Ten
2: Commandments, it was competing last night with the basketball game. I know. So it was flipping back and forth. It's still
0: amazing that scene of the separation. Of the oh, oh, the movie was on. The the movie. Movie. Okay. Yeah. I was like, what was going on with the Ten Commandments and <laughs> the uh, basketball
1: I was watching the and I oh, missing the game.
0: Were you going picture in picture or what? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Any other questions about anything? Schedules? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, Roberta.
5: Um, I've been reading. Uh-oh. Again. <laughs> and then uh, there was a discussion that I saw
0: on YouTube. So my question is... Don't trust what's on YouTube. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. That's a good question. History. Yeah.
5: Uh, in the Bible, what he sent the disciples out, Yeah. told them not to go to Asia. And so in the, in, missionaries didn't enter... China until the 17th century. Really? Why didn't he tell them not to go to Asia?
0: <laughs> I don't think he meant it the way we think of that. Right? Because I, I think he's thinking on a little narrower scale. But there's, so there's two times when he sends out the disciples, right? The first time he says, don't go to the Gentiles. That's his thing. He, he goes, go only to the Jews. The second time he says, now go out, you know, to all the towns and all that kind of stuff.
1: But
0: he still thought, um, don't go to Asia. Well, I, Paul probably didn't make it there. Depends on what you, what you mean by Asian. Because a lot of what Paul did was probably technically Asian. Um, but, you know, it, I, I guess what I would say is be cautious about applying our geographical categories to biblical stuff. Right? Because they didn't necessarily think about regions the same way we do.
1: They didn't go India, China. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, China
0: 17th century. So I did my vicarage at um, Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Saint Charles, Missouri. Great big church, old church, and um, they were instrumental in sending missionaries to India for the first time, and that was in the 1800s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, I know that they some of the missionaries who were first into India that kind of established. And there's a huge Lutheran population in India now. But that, a lot of that can trace its origins back to St. Charles in Missouri, which is kind of neat. Yeah. I don't
6: know why it's coming to my mind, but I was thinking there's a tradition that has Thomas
0: yeah. going to, to India. Uh-huh. Ah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Thomas okay. went. Thomas went to
1: India. Interesting. Okay. I wasn't aware. Of that. Yes, he did. where? From, uh, where in Scripture does it say not to go to
0: the Orient? Uh, I don't remember where it now. Huh. I at That's out. interesting. We need to look it up. Did you <laughs> find it? sometimes
5: he says not we'll to go to Asia. Yeah, that's what I uh, yeah. yeah. okay. sure. heard. I'm curious as to where it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But uh, it was about
0: 1611 when uh, uh, the Jesuits entered China. Okay. Interesting. Cool. What else? Yeah, gone.
7: Being around the scripture questions, and how might be able to. Th- First, Kristen, she sent a lot of pictures with where they were at, and they showed where Peter had denied. Yeah. But they said it. the tradition there thought that it was a horn, explained it more like, as a horn instead of a rooster throwing. Did you hear that?
2: Yes,
5: um, because the, the Hebrew word for cock, the goat to the base of it, is not a bird. It's the trumpet and the call. The priest would use the horn to call people to prayers every day, and the original Hebrew word was that. So when the cock crowed, it was the priest's horn hmm. on the top of the Temple Mount. Oh, I never heard Not the first Not the bird Not The bird.
0: One of the boy in the It seems more it seems more like it was a miracle. Yeah. We're told that the trumpet was happened
5: every day, right? Yeah, because well, that's yeah, true, the, but...
0: the trumpet was blown
5: you know, every time at the when it was prayer time and you, know, you look at the time of day. That that occurred, you know, if he was in the courtyard at night with a fire, does a rooster crow, you know, do <laughs> that at night? No. Sometimes oh, there sorry. is a call <laughs> to prayer at night. I am, it was <laughs> at night, but the chickens in the table were loved that night.
8: We used to have a lot of roosters crow at night. And you know what happened the next
7: <laughs> <this> day? <laughs> Daddy got up and we had
0: chicken, chicken for dinner. <laughs> I think it is true that roosters are not well calibrated. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, so I want to get started because we'll, the video that we have is, is going to take up pretty much the time that we have left. We, you know, we did a man named Martin. We did the first series where we kind of got to know Martin Luther a little bit. Um, there's. We're going to get into the second volume of that now, which is really more about kind of what was going on that led to The Augsburg Confession and a lot of the documents that are in the Book of Concord. So we're going to watch that. Um, Let me, two quick things. One I'll do a devotion and the other is to give you the schedule for Holy Week, because we're coming into Holy Week now. Um, Maundy Thursday, we don't have anything on Wednesday, okay? Maundy Thursday is 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. There's no soup supper on Thursday. We will do the stripping of the altar at the late service only. Okay? So Monday Thursday is 10 a.m., 7 p.m. Good Friday is the Tenebrae service, and that is only at 7 p.m. There is no morning service on Good Friday. Um, And then on Easter Sunday, uh, we have a sunrise service at 7 a.m. We've got breakfast at 8:15. The youth are doing an Easter breakfast. Um, for the kids, there's Easter eggs and crafts and stuff down here at 9.30. And then our 10.45 service as usual. So 7 a.m. and 10.45 worship on Easter Sunday. Okay? Any questions about food, that, Ken?
4: Food comes on Friday. What's that? The food. That you if you're
0: bringing food, have it here by Friday. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. True. Um and if you want to help with that, there are slips out there on the outreach bulletin board. Are they already gone? I think they're already gone. Okay. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, thank you. There's
4: no Sunday school on Easter.
0: No Sunday school on Easter, which is next week. So no Sunday school next week. No Bible study. It's
4: the
1: Easter
0: breakfast between Yes. Yeah, that starts at about eight, 8 fifteen. Okay. All right. Um, let's begin with a quick devotion. April 2nd, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. A person may plan his own journey, but the Lord directs his steps." Which I think is the biblical way of saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. The title of this is Looking Back on Life. Luther wrote, no one sees the hand of God working in his life more clearly than when he reflects back on the years of his life. Augustine said that if a person had a choice of either dying or reliving his life over again, he would certainly choose death because of all the danger and evil he so narrowly escaped. In one sense, this statement is certainly true. Looking back, a person can see how much he has accomplished and suffered without trying or thinking about it, even against his wishes and will. He gave such little thought to what he was doing before it occurred or when it was happening. Now, after everything has been carried out, he's amazed and he says, Why did these things happen to me when I never thought about them? Or thought something completely different would happen? So Proverbs 16.9 is true. A person may plan his own journey, but the Lord directs his steps, even against his plan and will. So we must agree that our own cleverness and foresight don't guide our life and actions. Instead, God's wonderful power, wisdom, and goodness guide us. Only as we look back do we fully recognize how often God was with us when we neither saw his hand, nor felt his presence at the time it was happening. Accordingly, Peter said, He cares for you. That's 1 Peter 5-7. Even if there were no books or sermons to tell us about God, simply looking back on our own lives would prove that he tenderly carries us in his arms. When we look back on how God has led and brought us through so much evil, adversity, and danger, we can clearly see the ever-present goodness of God, which is far above our thoughts, mind, and perception. That's a nice reminder. Let's pray. Uh, we thank you, Lord God, that you direct our steps, that you determine um, where our life winds up. And we thank you that you are always present with us to guide and to lead um, and to protect. Be with us today as we, uh, as we learn more about Martin Luther and about the events that led to the Reformation um, we pray that it might be beneficial to us in better understanding our faith and understanding you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you have a sheet here. I don't think we're going to have time to actually get to the questions, but this will be something to take home and kind of ponder um, after we watch the video. Because the video is long. It's like 26 minutes. So we'll go ahead and watch the video.
3: The moment it come. It was April 18th, 1821, 25 of Luther's books and pamphlets were on a table. The papal representative, Johann Eck, pointed to them and asked Luther, do you or do you not reject everything you've written in these books and the errors contained
6: in them? Luther was aware of the stakes. If he defied the emperor at that point, if he refused to recant, he was well aware of what had happened to John Huss about a hundred years earlier, who defied the church at the Council of Constance and was burned at the stake. Martin Luther answered, I cannot and I will not recant
3: anything. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen.
4: most Christians about,
2: what was the Reformation about? A lot of them would say indulgences. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted a document in Wittenberg, Germany entitled A Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. What we know now is the 95 Theses. When Luther posted the 95 Theses, he was not breaking with the church. He was not planning to start a new church or anything like the Reformation. In fact, at the time, he was a very faithful medieval Catholic. He still believed in praying to Mary. He believed in the intercession to the saints. He believed in purgatory and the sacrifice of the mass and transubstantiation. He was, in fact, a medieval Catholic. Some of his parishioners
4: are are going to where the indulgences are being preached. And they're coming back saying, "Oh well, I I don't have to confess. I've got an indulgence, or I don't have to really repent. I've got an indulgence." And he, he says, "This certainly isn't what they're telling these people."
5: His entire stance seemed to be there are some really terrible things going on on the ground, and if the pope only knew what some of these people were actually doing, well, he would he would step in to intervene. He
8: was so appalled that he sent a copy of the disputation to his archbishop, Albrecht of Mainz in order to inform him of the abuse. What Luther didn't know though, was that half the money was being sent to Albrecht, while the other half was being sent to the Pope to build St. Peter's Cathedral
5: in Rome. Even though they're really sketchy on a theological doctrinal level, um, no one in in the church hierarchy wanted to stop the sale of indulgences because it was generating so much revenue. So. Luther starts doing his careful work and careful
7: study, and he comes to realize that the sale of indulgences is certainly problematic. But as Luther thinks about this more and more, he realizes that this indulgence problem was really only one piece of a much bigger issue, which went to the entire structure of the medieval Catholic Church. And so you could even say that really this was just kind of just the tip of the iceberg, what Luther was discovering, as he thought about what
8: was really going on at the sale of indulgences. It was much like an iceberg that 90% of the problems of the church were beneath the surface.
2: It just wasn't indulgences alone. Of the 360 degrees on a compass, if you're off by 1 degree over a short distance, it doesn't make too big a difference. But if you extend that out over 1,000 miles, you end up being more than 17 miles off course. And this is what was happening in the church that oriented a little bit off scripture over the course of 1,000 or 1,500 years. The church's teaching had deviated far from what the biblical truth actually was.
7: And this is what Martin Luther came to see. The idea of the invocation of the saints, that you could pray to the saints and they would intervene for you. The um, supremacy of the pope, that he is the one bishop to whom all must yield to. The idea of the indulgences, obviously. The idea of purgatory. All these thoughts and all these teachings which had become part of the medieval church were all additions, were all changes, were all aberrations which were not scripturally grounded. So what Luther comes to realize is that one of the big questions he's really up against is really the issue of authority. Who who gets to speak for the doctrine of the church? Who speaks for what is the right teaching? And Luther's conclusion was, well, it should be Christ himself who speaks, and it should be Christ's word, the, the scriptures, and it should be the apostles and their teaching. And that set him apart from the way the church had been looking at it, the way the church had
6: been looking at it for years. The way the church had been looking at it, there was a deposit of faith, or a deposit of doctrine that got carried down through the years in a couple of forms. One was scripture and documents based on scripture, like the creeds, but there was also tradition unwritten tradition. Tradition that was passed down from one generation to another through apostolic succession. And those traditions could sometimes prove
7: even more potent than what the words of scripture said. For, for Rome at the time, the tradition is not simply that the positive faith being passed down faithfully from generation to generation like we still do when we teach the catechism or the creeds and things like that. It also included the papal authority and the councils, And so when they could say, hey, you've got to do this fast well, this is by Christ himself speaking, and Luther's saying, no, this is not Christ himself speaking, that's not part of the deposit of faith, in fact, that's an aberration from the deposit of faith. Luther
6: eventually rejected traditions that are not based on scripture as having any legitimate religious authority. And so Luther's goal, and this is the goal of all the reformers, and it's evidenced clearly in things like the Book of Concord and in the other Reformation documents, the goal was to bring the church back in right conversation with what had gone
3: before. They cared about what went before, and their concern was that Rome had left that, and they were trying to get back to it. The early Christian church began rather explosively according to the book of Acts which is the earliest church history. Luke tells us about the miracle of Pentecost when you have 3,000 converts and 5,000 a short time later. As a matter of fact, we can prove from secular Roman annals this really happened.
9: At his ascension, Jesus stood and he told his disciples and his followers to go into the world and to baptize and to make disciples of all nations. And so we have the church now moving across the Mediterranean world through the missionary
3: efforts of St. Paul. First Asia Minor, then Greece, and then finally when he makes the voyage to Rome, Italy is included as well.
5: But we have to understand that the first Gentile converts to Christianity were in the Greek-speaking world. So the initial language of the church was Greek, which explains why the books of the New Testament are written in Greek. And
1: so
3: these mission stations were set up, and there were four great centers of Christianity. Jerusalem, of course, where it all began, and then we have Antioch, where the... Disciples of Jesus were first called Christians, Alexandria, Egypt, and Rome in the West as well.
5: So in 70 AD, um, there was a massive revolt of Jews in Jerusalem against Roman rule. Uh, Revolt against Rome usually never turns out well, and this one didn't either. Um, But for Christianity, it, it completely changed it. It released it from its Judaic roots because the center of Christianity was no longer Jerusalem. It became Rome. Rome becomes the center, not only of Christianity, but it's the center of the Roman Empire. So that's where the church developed.
8: The church has always recognized the importance of bishops and leadership in the church. Uh, And there were some significant bishoprics around
4: the the world. Rome had no particular primacy. Even at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, there is no clear dominance or deference to the bishop of Rome. There's rather uh, bishops from all over the empire who gathered together to discuss these theological matters. However, very shortly thereafter, the empire splits into East and West. Constantine moves the capital to Constantinople, and East-West empire splits politically, and all the major churches in Christianity were in the Eastern part of the empire. Uh, Rome was the only major city left, and so naturally, uh, as the political center of the Western empire, as the economic center, It was rather natural, I think, for Rome to become also the ecclesiastical center and to make claims about its authority that didn't exist uh, two or three hundred years earlier. And so by the time uh, of the late Middle Ages, you have far-reaching claims
8: about the Pope's authority over heaven and earth as the Vicar of Christ.
5: And I think the biggest problem came in the 14th and 15th centuries. Um, what's going on in Europe is that the the political entities are centralizing. So kings are gaining increased control over the realms, and this is true in terms of legislation, in terms of uh, law, in terms of law courts, in terms of armies. So, for example, we're we're moving away from the feudal levy, where the kings are dependent upon feudal warriors to show up whenever he uh, calls them to battle, into a standing army. So as the kings are gaining more authority over the realms, the Renaissance popes are looking at this development thinking, aha, I want to do the same thing. So what we find the church doing in the 14th and 15th centuries is adopting a lot of the secular practices of the the kings and lords of Europe. And this obviously is detracting from the spiritual authority of the popes and really distracting them from what popes are supposed to do. Initially, the concept of Peter being the head of the church is biblical idea at least that's where it came from the roman catholic church had based this teaching
6: on the event recorded in matthew 16 in the bible where jesus asks his disciples "Well, who do you say that i am simon peter replied you are the christ the son of the living god and jesus answered him blessed are you simon bar jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven.
5: So as the legend goes, Peter died in Rome, um, and as the tradition had it, before he died, he passed along the keys which he had received from Christ to the bishop of Rome. And So that is the center of the Roman Church, and ultimately the bishop of Rome will be called Pope. And for the Catholic Church, legitimate authority resided obviously with the Pope, because he was the apostolic
7: successor of Jesus. So for Rome, apostolic meant every single Pope was succeeded by the next one, all the way back, retrogressively, to Peter. Peter and Christ himself. And so the question of Peter
4: being the first Pope was a big deal, always has been. There's no evidence that Peter ever served as Bishop of Rome at all. For example, Paul's letter to the Romans in the late 50s does not mention Peter at all. Uh, He's martyred in Rome in the 60s, probably along with Paul, uh, and so he's buried there. So it became very easy for later bishops of Rome to emphasize that fact, that Peter uh, was martyred here, uh, he was buried here, Uh, And to make the small move to say that he was therefore a bishop here and therefore to claim, you know, preeminence among the other bishops based on passages like Matthew 16. When you examine the Greek text, Peter's name is in the masculine form, Petros. So Jesus says you are Petros because he's a man. But then he says on this rock, Petra, in the feminine, I will build my church. So he doesn't say, I'm Peter, I will build my church, but I'm a rock, I will build my church. Mm-hmm. And that's understood to be the confession that Peter made two verses earlier, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God.
8: The earliest reference that we have about the use of the word Catholic Church
3: is by St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred in the arena of Rome. St. Ignatius said, where the bishop is present, there is the Catholic Church. Of course, by Catholic, he meant the complete church. The term priest came to be used as the Western churches
10: began to use Latin instead of Greek in their writings during the third century. So the Greek word for elder, presbyteros, was, was simply brought into Latin as presbyter. Now this should really carry the connotation of what we know as a pastor. But mid-3rd century, Latin writers like uh, Cyprian also referred to elders with the Latin word sacerdos, which is one of the several Latin words for a priest, a person who offers sacrifices. So Rome saw the priest as the the only conduit of God's grace, like the high priest in the Old Testament, and of course the one who would offer the
8: sacrifice of the Mass. Doctrines like purgatory or like uh,
1: uh,
8: auricular confession that was required each year or transubstantiation or whatever they might be, uh, these were all evolved over time. And I think the result of of not allowing the Bible to be the ultimate source of,
5: of doctrine and teaching. There are really two ways in which these non-biblical practices entered the Church. One was from above, either imposed by the Pope or high-ranking Church members, but there are a lot of practices also that entered daily life of the Church through the people, so these came from below. So, uh, emphasis upon saints, relics, pilgrimages, uh, veneration of Mary, so a lot of these things developed over time and there wasn't anyone often checking for continuity so sometimes a later council would contradict something that an earlier council had said. So by the time we get to the late Middle Ages Catholic theology is actually fairly mixed up. The groundwork
8: for one of the first doctrines of the Catholic Church actually came from one of the books of the Apocrypha. Now the word Apocrypha means that <laughs> these were fourteen books that fell at the back end of Malachi and proceeded to the New Testament. About a 400-year gap there. You know, the books
10: of the Old Testament, they were originally written in Hebrew. But when Alexander the Great took over the area, there was the need to translate the scriptures into Greek. So that's why scholars gathered. They gathered to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and that Greek translation became known as the Septuagint. However, here's the thing. that The scholars included 14 books that were not in the Hebrew Bible. These books became known as the Apocrypha, and because they were never included in the Hebrew Bible, the Jews never considered them to be inspired. You know, they contained important history, but were considered less authoritative than other books of the Bible. Now, because they were included in the Septuagint, they were later included in the Latin translation of Jerome, which we call the Vulgate. Now,
8: the Apocrypha was part of the Vulgate that Jerome translated in the early 400s, after these books were considered canonized or scripture. However, in
2: a preface, he indicated that the books of the Old Testament were authoritative in a way that the books of the Apocrypha were not. However, as history went on, the medieval church began to use all of these books
8: in the Vulgate as if they were equally authoritative. One particular book, 2nd Maccabees, introduces the Seleucid Empire, who were invading and basically demanding that the Jews at that time worship the Greek gods. Following one of the battles, it actually reads, For if he were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus he made atonement for the dead and they may be absolved from their sin." These verses are still heard at many Catholic funerals today. So this verse is from Maccabees which are recognized by Jews and
10: Protestants as uninspired historical writings. They were used by the medieval church and even by the Roman Catholic Church today to justify the doctrines of prayers
6: for the dead and purgatory. for new ideas to start entering the church.
2: Around 200 AD in North Africa the theologian Tertullian was very concerned about Christians living in ways that were true to God's will. In fact he felt so strongly about this that he devised the term mortal sins to describe sins that the church could not and should not forgive in order to allow people back into the church. This laid the foundation for what would later become mortal and venial sins in medieval Catholic teaching. Mortal sins being sins that actually cut you off from God, venial sins being sins, but sins that could be pardoned often by doing things like prayer or giving alms that would turn into the doctrine of penance.
6: year or 240, Origen in Alexandria said that the souls of the elect go to heaven unless they need to go through a period of purifying, of purgation, a, a, a torturous time in which sins that they had not completely paid for in this life would be paid for. So the teaching of purgatory
7: has its its roots, like so many of these medieval teachings way back in the early Middle Ages or even into the early early centuries of the church. But the doctrine of purgatory, like so many of these doctrines, wasn't officially pronounced as Catholic church doctrine until the 13th century. It takes a while sometimes. Often these teachings were there in the popular imagination, but then they were officially granted status. And so it was one of the councils of Lyon that said, yes, this is a teaching of the church and purgatory is one of the realities of the Christian life. And this is when it was granted that kind of status. That's typical of a lot of these teachings that Luther was dealing with, that they were granted official status relatively recently, but the teachings had have been going on a long before that.
6: In about the year 250, another church father, Cyprian of Carthage, introduced the idea of priests as sacrificing priests. Now lots of people in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles, were both familiar with the idea of priests sacrificing various kinds of animals like rams, or bulls, or goats. Cyprian brought this into the realm of Christianity. And so the idea that every Christian pastor was a priest offering a sacrifice, and the sacrifice that he offered was the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. It's not like you had the blood of Christ spilling out in a thousand different directions, but this was a re-offering of the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of the living and the dead. So in other words, this thinking developed that the sacrifice of
9: Jesus Christ on the cross was not enough, the finished work Christ, the atonement of Christ was not enough. So, therefore, it was necessary somehow for the priest to continue sacrificing Christ over and over again on the cross.
0: Also, at the time of Cyprian, during the Decian
4: persecution, around 250, uh, the Roman emperors began to demand that Christians make a sacrifice uh, to, to the Roman Emperor as a god. Many Christians out of fear persecution or fear for their life or other reasons did make these
7: sacrifices. And later they would regret that and they would repent of that. Well, the church wasn't sure what to do with that. They even had a name for these people. They called them the lapsing because they had, fallen the way, they had lapsed. And the church decided, this is not a small thing. And they were not kind with these repentant individuals. And in fact, they started to decide, well, we'll let you back after you do a significant time of penance which could be up to maybe 20 years showing your
1: penance um, There are stories even we have from the early church where penitent sinners would be made to lie across the threshold of the church building and the people would step over them as they went into the building and that's to show their humility or they would have to go through periods of long fasting
7: and these would last decades sometimes and this led easily to this, the abuses that grew into the Middle Ages of, well, if you do the sin, you've got to do the penance to show you're really sorry for this. And you can see where the roots for this were. They're already there in the church, and then got worse as time went on. According to tradition, Christian monasticism, it began in Egypt around 275 AD with St. Anthony. Now originally, all Christian monks, they were hermits, uh, living alone in the desert and seldom encountering other people. But because of the extreme difficulty
10: of the solitary life, many monks, they they failed. So around 340 AD, a bishop, Basil of Caesarea, he helped define the monastic system. So the basic idea of monasticism was seclusion or withdrawal from the world or society with the goal to then reduce temptation, and of course then to reduce sin. So its focus was personal salvation. Rules included such things as chastity, vows of poverty, and vows of silence. Theophilus, Patriarch of Alexandria, placed the virtue of silence on par with the faith itself in a synodical letter around 8400. He said this, Monks, if they wish to be what they are called, will love silence in the Catholic faith. For nothing at all is more important than these two things. In the Middle Ages, you basically had two tiers of citizens.
7: You had everybody, then you had the monks and the priests and the nuns. The clerical group, those were the serious religious people. Those were the ones who were serious about getting right with God. And there were a lot of them. Some estimates have it as many
1: as 20% in some areas at some times. It's so like one in that was a cleric. And the problem was then. If you were just an average Joe citizen, you knew there was no way you would ever be right with God. You were just muddling through your life waiting to die. So you could go to purgatory for 10 or 20,000 years. <laughs>
7: it was not a pleasant prospect. It was it was a miserable existence, frankly. And most of them couldn't afford to run off to a monastery or couldn't do that kind of thing. and So they just ground through life and wasn't very happy. So when Luther basically undoes the whole divide and says no, there's no tears of Christianity, there's no fast track to being right with God, we simply all receive his grace. And then he's basically saying even the, the, the maid who's just doing her work, she is right with God. It changed everything. It changed life for the common people. Life now was, was full of meaning and when death came, it was not this of <gasps> purgatory, it was the confidence of knowing they died in the Lord in God's forgiveness and grace. It changed everything. Century, August of Hippo, in North
2: Africa, spoke about justification as if, at baptism, grace is infused, and this grace transforms the individual so that then, in a healing process, they are able to more and more live in ways that are true to God's will and to avoid doing evil. It's not that they were free from sin, but that more and more they could become justified in this way.
9: church grew, it continued to face uh, greater and greater persecution until uh, the Emperor Constantine in 313 issued the Edict of Milan, which brought a new peace for Christianity. Uh, Constantine also called the uh, Council of Nicaea. From which we get the Nicene Creed, and the main accomplishment of that council was to settle the dispute, the Christological dispute, who is Christ and the person of Christ and the relationship of Christ, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to the Father. And while that was settled, um, and the divinity of Christ was never called into question after that, there was a strange new doctrine and practice that developed wherein there was this notion that um, the forgiveness of sins, especially sins committed after one's baptism, was no longer uh, forgivable by Jesus Christ, but Christ was almost stripped of his power to forgive those sins, and that power of forgiveness was transferred to the Pope. <laughs> and it is kind of
7: mind boring to think that the, the church in the 1800s was still declaring doctrine about Mary, but that's how things work.
4: Now you gotta wake up though. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> they, they corrupted the scripture. Yeah. Like the uh, like the Israelites did earlier. Yeah. To introduce uh, man-made stuff. To...
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to kind of trace how that stuff happened. Your comment. Pam earlier about the Hebrew into Greek was probably about the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated into Greek, which frequently is what when Jesus quoting Scripture he's quoting the Septuagint mm-hmm. um, and others too. So I think that's what you were talking about. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. You're
5: right. I was um,
0: like... yeah. 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 That makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, that that's it for time. You like I said, you got the handout that's got a lot more information in it. You can kind of use that as a Home study guide, if you want to. Um, we'll pick up with session two, not next week, but the following week. No, we won't. The following week, um, I'm out of town. Pastor Spencer's filling in, and he gets. I told him he can do a session on whatever he wants. So I don't know what you're going to come up with, but it'll be good. Is there volume two
6: of the video? There is a volume two of the
0: video. Of the video if you want to but, but you got to work out all the technical stuff to make that happen. <laughs> all right let's uh, close with a prayer thank you lord god for the blessings of your word and for the certainty that our sins are forgiven um, by and through jesus christ his death his life death and resurrection we thank you for the certainty that we have that we are saved that we have been made right with you and that we have eternal life with you to look forward to Um, be with us as we go forth from here guide and lead us in everything that we do Uh, that it might be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.
1: Have a great day.